My uh, message today is called Reaching Forward. As we come to the end of another year and enter into a new year, it's a common practice to begin with a fresh start. Does anyone already have a New Year's resolution? You do. <laughs> really? Did you know that um, research shows that 80% of all resolutions fail by February alone? You probably know that. Others drop off a little later. So how does one make changes necessary to clean up from last year and chart a course forward into a new year? Assuring that you're still growing and still fine-tuning your walk with Christ. Well, I will tell you that the Bible is everything that we need to know if we know where to look for it, if we know how to find it, and also if we know how to apply it to our life consistently. The godly-inspired writings of Paul are excellent for reflection and application for our topic today. Why, Paul? Because if there's one thing that holds many Christians back, it's the exhausting condemnation of shame from previous sins committed. Shame is one of the strongest weapons that the enemy uses against Christians who are trying to grow closer to God. Shame showers you with guilt. It persistently needles you with destructive thoughts. It constantly reminds you of your failures and your inadequacies. And all the time it tells you that you can never escape the grasp of your past. If you are like many others, you've no doubt spent time in your prison cell of shame. As for Paul, he had great sins to leave in his past when he met Jesus on the road to Damascus. Paul was greatly humbled by his guilt of his former life. In the book of 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15, he writes this, This is a trustworthy saying, and everyone should accept it. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, and I am the worst of them all. Have you ever felt like your sin was the worst, that no one is as bad as you? Here's Paul, who wrote a good portion of the New Testament, and he calls himself the worst sinner of all. Do you think he's being overdramatic? Not at all. Not only did he sin like all of us, all of us sin, all of us fall short, but he did so believing that he was obeying God by purifying the faith. Verse 12. He says, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has given me strength to do His work. He considered me trustworthy and appointed me to serve Him. Verse 13, even though I used to blaspheme, blaspheme the name of Christ in my insolence or in my ignorance, I persecuted people. You see, working as a Pharisee, Paul used to track down Christians pull them from their homes, drag them to prison where they were bound and tortured and killed simply for following Jesus. Imagine if that was going on today. Come into your house now because you believe in Jesus and drag you out into prison. That's what he did in the name of God. One of the 
commandments that we are aware of by wording is that we are not to take the Lord's name in vain. And a lot of people, a lot of people think that means you shouldn't swear with God's name. That's not what it means. It means you shouldn't attach anything and, and call it Christian if it's not Christian. You shouldn't, put, you shouldn't put God's label on it if it's not of God. And so when he was going around and persecuting people, believing that he was rewarding God, that was, that was not God's intention. It's like the terrorism in other parts of the world where they're going around and killing uh, these suicide bombers and killing people, blowing themselves up. Why? It's not because they're crazy. It's because in their religion they believe that they are rewarded for killing people that believe something different than they believe. That's taking God's name in vain. Paul did that exact same thing. He believed he was honoring God in all that he did, which showed him really how far from God that he was and how little he really knew of God's message through his word. Indeed, Paul had much guilt and much shame to leave behind, stepping into this life with Christ. But just like us, Paul not only had to leave shame behind in order to follow Christ with all his heart, he also had to continually deal with pride as he reached forward to Christ. Philippians 3, verse 3, he writes, For we are the circumcision who worship God in the Spirit, rejoice in Christ Jesus, and have no confidence in the flesh. Circumcision is the cutting away of the flesh. It's a choice we make submitting to Christ so that he can cut away things in us and in our lives, things that try to preserve or try to promote our desires over God's desires. If we submit to him and spend time in his word, God does a work in us and he cuts those things away. Pride is the sinful choice of having confidence in our abilities, in our logic, in our efforts. It's the choice to pump ourselves up and believe we deserve more because of what we bring or because of who we are. This sin of self-confidence is something that Paul had to clearly overcome to be used by God. Philippians 3 verse 4. Though I also might have confidence in the flesh. If anyone thinks that he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so. What are you saying? He's saying, I'm more prideful than any of you. If you've ever dealt with pride, you don't know what I've had to overcome. You don't know what God's had to cut away in me. The flesh was very strong in Paul. He had much to take pride in. And thus, he had much that needed to be cut away. What exactly did God have to cut away in Paul? Verse 5. I was circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews concerning the law. law I was a Pharisee, which is the top upper echelon. Paul had the lineage to back up his self-worthiness. He had the training and the education. He had the credentials. He had the affiliation to back up his occupation. Verse 6, concerning zeal, I was so zealous I persecuted the church. Concerning righteousness, 
which is in the law? Paul states, I was blameless. I followed the law to a T. Paul had a track record of doing authoritative tasks, believing that he was persecuting false teachers and mockers of the faith. He felt empowered by all those whom he persecuted. And because of his actions, he was feared by many, which gave him an even greater sense of power. You see, when we get critical of others, that same pharisaical spirit rises in us. We think that we're criticizing others because they're not doing what they're supposed to instead of putting that magnifying glass on our own lives as well. If that was not enough in the eyes, in his own eyes, Paul believed he had the highest level of self-righteousness. Like all Pharisees, he took pride in how well he believed he was following the law. I'm better than you. Because of his assessment of himself, he considered himself blameless. Could there be another more self-righteous and more prideful and more ignorant person? Paul didn't think so. He didn't think so. And yet God still used him. If you think God can't use you because of something you've done or something you believe or how far you are away from God or some sin that you keep struggling with, if you think that, then you don't know the Bible. God's in the business of redeeming and forgiving if we humble ourselves. But Paul had to leave that behind and let God cut away those things from his heart. Paul had built his life on these things. He considered his influence with others, his religious authority, and his lack of detractors to be a unanimous vote of approval and support for his success in life. He thought for sure it would be a unanimous vote that he would be the MVP of the faith. Biggest problem was that God does not define success the way that people do. The things which seem to pump up the flesh to increase our self-confidence, to make us feel good about ourselves, they're all rubbish to God. In fact, there's one part in Scripture in the book of Isaiah that God says that all of your righteousness, all the good things you do that makes you feel good about yourself, God says to me, it's like filthy rags. On God's heavenly scales, of value and worth. They weigh absolutely nothing. All these things that make us feel good, and we're doing okay, God says, that's, that's nothing to me. It's rubbish. All these things that Paul used to pump himself up meant absolutely nothing to God. That's the realization that Paul came to as the Holy Spirit did a full assessment and evaluation of Paul's life. See, we're not just stepping into a new year. We are constantly trying to submit to God so He can be, make us more like Him. I don't know about you, but I failed miserably many times in this past year. And I know I'm not perfect, and by His grace I'm saved and found in Him, but it doesn't mean I just give up and say, I'm not perfect, so I'm not going to try. We need to continually to submit ourselves to that cutting away so that God can make us more like Him. How about you? As you consider your life right now, 
What makes you feel successful? What makes you feel worthy? What makes you feel good about yourself or your life direction? Is it your talents? Is it your abilities? Is it the connections you've made? How about your education or your training? Maybe it's your achievements or your milestones that you've reached. Or maybe it's the accolades you've heard from others about you. Do any or all of these things pump you up in a way that make you feel good about yourself? Because if they do, you can relate to Paul. He had great confidence in the flesh. He even felt that he had more faith than others. He felt that he followed God more deeply than his peers. That he had great spiritual discipline. And that his devotion to God was his greatest asset. How can that be a bad thing? How about with you? Are you ever tempted to compare yourself to others based on what you think you are doing for God? Do you compare yourself to others by how much you pray? Do you compare yourself to others by how much you read the Bible? Do you compare yourself to others by how much you attend church or serve in ministries? These can all be contributors to confidence in the flesh. Looking at the things that we do and assessing our value or worthiness because of what we, we bring to the table. This is how Paul measured himself before Christ struck down his pride. Philippians 3, verse 7. But what things were gained to me, these I have counted as loss for Christ. As Paul came to truly understand what Christ desired in his life, he realized he was measuring and valuing the wrong things. How about you? The things that you are going after in life, are you measuring and valuing the wrong things? I can't answer that for you. But God can if you go to him. The more Paul submitted to Christ, the more he was convicted by the Holy Spirit to focus on the Lord instead of himself and instead of his efforts, instead of his abilities. If we take our cue from Paul, if we honestly say, I truly want to be a follower of Jesus, then we too will realize that all these things that we have overvalued in our lives are worthless in our pursuit of Jesus himself. Verse 8, Yet indeed I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish, that I may gain Christ. Over time in following Christ, Paul changed his assessment of what it was, what was of worth in his life. It was as if his life resume changed completely. How about you? What's your resume filled with? Your accomplishments, the things you've done, your education, your credentials? When Paul became closer to Christ, his whole resume was changed completely. The attributes, the experiences, the achievements, the influences, the education his own self-assessment, it all meant nothing. And it was stripped from Paul's resume. 
but he had a new resume with Christ. You see, they were all replaced with the excellence of knowing Jesus Christ as his Lord, as his Savior, as his Redeemer, as his friend, as his King, as his Teacher, his Master, his all in all. This is the transformation that God seeks to bring in everyone who truly desires to follow after him. If you're serious about truly evaluating your life right now and truly desiring to make changes in your life that line up with God's will and his word, then you must be willing to allow God to change your resume as well. It doesn't take a rocket scientist to look around in the world today with wars and rumors of wars and evil rising up in all places and the love of many growing cold. God said all this would happen. It's time to get our lives right with God. Philippians 3.9 And be found in Him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. Paul found that true success had nothing to do with him or anything he had done. But instead, true success has everything to do with Christ and what He has done for each one of us. And as God revealed His will to Paul through a Spirit-led evaluation and assessment, Paul realized what his greatest desire had now become. 3.10 That I may know Him. That's Paul's greatest desire. That I may know Christ and the power of His resurrection, and the fellowship of His sufferings, being conformed to His death. We've talked a lot about how to evaluate our walk with Christ, and yet there's a way to assess whether or not we are truly on the right path. Every true Christian experiences two miraculous realizations beginning with the life here on earth. The first realization is that Jesus loved you enough in spite of your sins to die for you personally. And He offers you forgiveness and redemption and eternal life if you repent and turn to Him. He's not looking for perfection. No one's perfect except for Him. He's just looking for you to acknowledge that you need Him. Thus, the first miraculous realization is salvation. He becomes your Savior. The second great realization is that as you commit to knowing Him through prayer and seeking to know Him through His Word and allowing the Holy Spirit to daily guide you, God's will becomes your personally desired will. You actually want the same thing for your life that God wants for you. This is what happened to Paul. The very things that Paul feared and had resisted in his life had now become his greatest desire to know Christ and his resurrection. By experiencing a fellowship with his suffering and being conformed to his death. Paul knew that the way to know the power of Christ's love was by seeking to understand the power of his resurrection. It's the same thing that we seek as well if we are true followers 
of Christ. You see, when you go through difficult times and you're struggling and it hurts and it's painful and it's uncomfortable and you're annoyed by it, what's happening is God is cutting away the flesh. Of course you're not going to like it. No one likes that. But our spirit craves that because our spirit says, I'm becoming more like Christ. I'm learning to suffer. I'm learning to go through unfair things for Christ. I am actually becoming more like him. Of course it doesn't feel good, but my spirit is yearning to be one with Christ. We know that the resurrection, physically, what it was to Jesus, as his body was resurrected out of the grave. But we must also know that when Jesus took the sins of mankind upon himself and died, when he arose, the power of sin remained dead. Jesus arose, not the sin, not the power of the sin. Condemnation died in the grave, and it did not rise again. We don't have any right to pick that condemnation up because Jesus died for our sins. To us, the power of resurrection is keeping those sins dead and rising in the Spirit of Christ. That's what we are called to know and understand so we can apply that to our lives. It's a daily realization for us. If we know who we are in Christ, we will know the power of resurrection every day in our lives. This means that every day when you awake, you are reminded of your new life in Him. No matter how you've failed, no matter what choices you've done, no matter how you've messed up or how far you've walked away from Christ, it doesn't matter. If you trust Him to forgive you and to redeem you, then your sins remain dead. They do not get back up unless you pull that condemnation with you. We can rise to a new life every morning. His Word declares so. Lamentations 3, 22 and 23. Listen, if you can't forgive yourself, of something that you've done or some stronghold that you're battling with right now and you blow it all the time, if you can't forgive yourself, then this verse is for you. Through the Lord's mercies, we are not consumed because His compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. No matter what you have done, God says, I forgive you every morning. Even if you struggled, you know it's wrong, and you're having a hard time breaking it, God says, I have forgiven you. Every morning, His mercies are new. If we truly know Him, then we can experience the power of His resurrection each and every morning as we awaken Him. As we resurrect the morning each day, knowing that the power of our sins remains dead. Are we still going to sin? Yes. Why? Because we're sinners. We're imperfect. But the power of sin remains dead and the condemnation is in the grave. So eventually I will become better and I will, I, I will become closer to God. I'm not going to be perfect, but I'm not going to walk in that condemnation. As I submit to God, He makes us less like us and more like Him. Thus the second miraculous realization is our sanctification. His will becomes our will. He becomes not just our Savior, 
but our Lord. And as we experience suffering in our temporal bodies, we draw closer to Him and to our eternity with Him. We let go of the comforts of this world so that we can cling to Christ with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength. Philippians 3.11 If by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead, not that I have already attained or I am already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. Theologian Oswald Chambers had this to say about the essence of Paul's comments about perfection. It's a trap to presume that God wants to make us perfect specimens of what he can do. God's purpose is not to make us perfect. It's to make us one with himself. The emphasis of some movements tends to be that God is producing specimens of holiness to put in his museum. If you accept this concept of personal holiness, your life's determined purpose will not be for God. It will be for what you call the evidence of God in your life. How can we say it could never be God's will for me to be sick? If it was God's will, as His Word said, it was His will to bruise His own Son, why shouldn't He bruise you? Why shouldn't He allow you to go through un fair things and difficult things so he can cut away those things of the flesh. What shines forth and reveals God in your life is not your consistency to an idea of what a saint should be or what a Christian should be, but rather it's your genuine living relationship with Jesus Christ, your unrestrained devotion to him, whether you are well or whether you are sick. Christian perfection is not and never can be human perfection. Christian perfection is the perfection of a relationship with God. You will never be perfect. But when you mess up, can you say, I was wrong? It's my fault. I'm sorry. Please forgive me. I accept your forgiveness. That's what a perfect relationship is. It shows ourselves to be true even amidst unimportant things in our lives or difficult times, it's our relationship that God asked to be perfect, that when we fall, we turn to Him every time. When you obey the call of Jesus Christ, the first thing that hits you is the pointlessness of the things that you have to do. The next thought that strikes you is that other people seem to be living perfectly consistent lives. Such lives may leave you with the idea that if they're living lives and they're not following God, why do I even need to follow God? In a fallen world, you can never be perfect on your own. You can never reach God's standard on your own. God desires your oneness with Him, not your perfection, your oneness. I am called to live a life in such a perfect relationship with God that my life produces a yearning for God in others not an admiration of myself. Thoughts about myself hinder my usefulness to God. And God's perfect purpose is not to perfect me or to make me a trophy in His showcase. He's getting me to the place where He can use me. So I need to let Him do whatever He wants. Once we're able to freely let go of those things we have sought for so long, we're able to freely reach forward for Christ. Verse 13. 
Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those which are ahead. I don't know what you have to let go of in 2023 or what you need to leave behind. If it's pride, if it's shame or condemnation, if it's fear, if it's laziness, if it's contentment, whatever it is, God knows what it is. But God's asking you right now, will you leave those things behind and reach forward to what I have for you? His mercies are new each and every morning. Paul met Jesus on the road to Damascus. There is no road to Damascus here. But there is the cross. That's where each one of us meets Jesus. If God spoke to you during this message, during this time of reflection, I ask you right now to leave those things behind in 2023 and reach forward to the amazing life that God has for you as you perfect your relationship with the King of Kings.